0: You guys like that? I like that. Uh, sadly for us, sometimes what we're going to discover is that as Jesus is talking about what a follower is, it looks a lot like what that trainer's referring to with the dogs. We'll see how that goes as we dig into this message. Uh, happy to see you here. Happy that you're here to take in some God's truth. Let me pray for us, and then we will we'll barge ahead. God, thank you for this time we have together. Thanks for this. Uh, place we have to worship in. Thanks for Marley being here to set things up for us. Lord, we, uh, we, we do praise his activities, praise his talents, praise his service to us. Uh, thanks for you being here, God. That we ask that you would descend uh, in a real way on us, that you would speak to us, that you would train us, teach us, show us, and help us to be really obedient, to listen and respond. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in John chapter chapter 17. Jesus is praying through this entire 26 verses of the thing. We're listening in on that prayer, and uh, good thing for us, we get to do that. Uh, I don't know about how you describe yourself, but do you describe yourself as a follower of Jesus? If somebody were to ask you, is that who you are? When I use the term follower, I'm not using it in the Twitter or X uh, or Instagram or Facebook kind of way. If you uh, do tweet or follow social media, uh, no doubt some of you are addicted to it, uh, given these US statistics, uh, you become followers, right? In early August, I searched to find out who was the most followed on three social media platforms X, Elon Musk. In Instagram, it's a fellow by the name of Cristiano Ronaldo. He's a Portuguese footballer in America. What that means is he plays soccer. And in Facebook, it's also Cristiano Ronaldo. But when I say I'm a follower of Jesus, I mean that I'm a disciple of his, a student of his. I remember when I chose to become one. I remember when I received the Lord into my life. I remember where I was. And being a disciple of Jesus is a whole lot closer, again, to what the dog trainer was trying to aim for rather than being a follower on social media. Give the dog a better job to do than jump on people or doors or chase everything he comes across. Pay attention to the one holding the leash. If I say sit, the dog must sit. He must hear, acknowledge the hearing by obedience, and he'll end up being a great dog. Here we apply some of that to Jesus and us. And if we do, we might end up being good or maybe even better followers of Christ. You probably know the famous Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken, right? In that poem, he talks about being in the woods and the path that he's on splits into diverges. And he has to choose which way he's going to take. And he knows mm, he probably can only invest himself in one of the paths, although he kind of tells himself that he you know, maybe decide to come back someday and take the other path and see what's on that, but I think in all honesty, he knew that would probably never happen, and so he writes, I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverge in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference, By the end of the poem, you kind of realize that Frost isn't really talking about two paths in a forest, as much as the choices made along life's road. And we make very important decisions regarding where we're going to go. And when I chose to follow Christ, I knew I was choosing the road less traveled. And that's made all the difference. But we see another side of the coin today, too. We've seen it a few times in the Gospel of John already. Jesus kind of reiterates it to us in prayer form to his father. The disciples are listening in, so they're, they're, they're grasping a little bit of what he's saying. We have here in John chapter 17, verses 6 to 10, Jesus talking to his dad about how followers get formed, how disciples are made. And the prayer of, um, kind of lifts us up above just the human choice. We get a window into the divine activity on our behalf, in addition to just the human choice. Notice the wording as Jesus prays this, It's starting in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, Jesus says. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. When it comes to the formation of Jesus' followers, there's kind of three components that pop up in blazing lights in this paragraph that I want us to see. Components to becoming a disciple. The first one is this. The Father reserves them. Jesus says, yours they were, these disciples he's praying for, and you gave them to me. He says that in verse 6. You gave them out of the world to me. That's repeated In so many words, in verses 9 and 10. So to sum it up, the Father, at some point before the world ever came to be, had you and me in mind. He chose us. He reserved you. And then he takes that reservation and he gives you and me as a gift to his Son. We covered that just a little bit last week. So you and I become part of a whole new company of people called the church. Jesus said, upon this rock, referring to the truth that Peter had just spoken about who Jesus Christ is, I will build my church, Jesus says. But what we see in listening to this prayer, in eavesdropping on Jesus' talking, we see that we're dealing with these holy mysteries of election and predestination, pretty heavy theological stuff. And before we even dip our toes into those waters, let me just give you the definition of a follower of Jesus, a disciple. Now, you know the term disciple comes from the Bible. What you may not know is that the term was really in common usage a couple of thousand years ago. The philosophers, the great mentors of the mind in the ancient world, had a lot of disciples. The word means to be a pupil, a learner, a student. Ancient philosophers would take large sums of money from their students, families of the students, right? Kind of like college today in America. <laughs> but, and uh, see, in those days, disciples were the ones who would pursue the mentors, pursued the masters. They would ask to be mentored or discipled by some great teacher or philosopher, and they would pay a lot of money for it sometimes. And so we see there's a difference between that kind of follower, that kind of disciple, and these followers or disciples of Jesus. First and foremost, who chose whom? Well, it was Jesus who was walking by the Sea of Galilee one day, and he sees Peter and Andrew, brothers. They were casting a net. And Jesus walks up and says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They drop everything and follow him immediately. He walks a little further. He sees two brothers, James and John, mending their nets with their dad, Zebedee. And Jesus says, hey, you guys, follow me. Immediately, they drop everything and follow Jesus. Later on in the same town was Matthew, an IRS agent, a tax collector. Jesus walks into his office, which is probably a little hut along the side of a path, a road. He says, hey, it's quitting time. In so many words, leave all this. Follow me. And Matthew says, he drops everything and follows Jesus. Sometime later, Jesus is going to remind them of all this when he tells them, you did not choose me. I chose you. I appointed you that you should bear fruit. Now, in one sense, Jesus did choose them. But in another sense, they had to make a decision to cooperate, right? To actually follow, to drop everything and go. Their own volition was involved in the choice. There's always been this kind of tug of war with angst between these two great biblical truths or doctrines. God's election, predestination, and man's free will. See, on one side, you have all these texts in Scripture that talk about us making a decision to cooperate with God. Remember in the book of Joshua, when the, he tells the, the nation of Israel, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. He appeals to their human decision-making process. First message of John the Baptist was, you guys need to change your mind. You need to repent. You, make, you need to make a decision to Turn for the kingdom of God is at hand. Again, appealing for them to make a choice. Matthew 11, Jesus says, "Come Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. To the leaders, Jesus will say, But you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. Again, John chapter 7, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. All of those are appeals for the exercise of human will. All the way to the last book of Scripture, the last chapter of the last book in Scripture, Revelation 22, we read this The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. On the other hand, you also have all of these other magnificent texts in Scripture to speak about God doing the reserving, God doing the electing, God doing the calling, God doing the predestining, etc. For example, in John chapter 6, Jesus says this, no one, that includes pretty much everybody, right? No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's a sovereign work. That's a divine work. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the creation of, of the world, That's where you and I ever showed up. We weren't making part of that decision. You might say God had you and in in me in mind before the world even began. And here in John 17, the prayer of Jesus contains the same truth about Jesus' followers. Yours they were, Father, and you gave them to me. Now, for the life of me, I do not really understand the fight that's gone on and continues to rage. And boy, in some church circles, it's quite a fight between those who adhere to what they believe Calvinism is, and they want to emphasize divine election over human choice. And in some churches, they want to emphasize human choice over divine election. Here's the deal. Both of them are true. And Jesus actually felt the freedom to include both of them in the same paragraph. In fact, sometimes in the same paragraph sentence. This from John 6, verse 37. We've already taught on it, so we're just reminding you of it. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. So there's the combination of God sort of involving himself in choosing and electing, and man cooperating and choosing from an earthly perspective. So here is the deal, and my personal plea to you as your pastor. What Jesus has sought To harmonize, let's not polarize over. Jesus brings both doctrines together in the same sentence. You can marvel at it, you can wonder at it, you can scratch your head and go, hmm, interesting, but at the end of the day, you know what we ought to do? We ought to enjoy it. Because you know what it means? It means God picked you. Maybe you remember what it was like in grade school. Where in gym class or in the playground, Someone would uh, pick two captains, and they would then take turns picking people to be on their kickball team or whatever it was. Certain kids were always the last ones chosen. Remember how much fun that was if you were one of the last two chosen? Awful, right? It could even be in class. Choosing sides for a spelling bee, right? competition. Two, Two captains would be chosen. They'd go through the class, pick people. You'd line up on one side of the wall, Their team on the other side of the wall, go through the spelling bee. What would happen when you misspelled a word? You'd have to trudge out of the line as a failure, back to your desk, all eyes upon you. Awesome, awesome, hurtful process. (laughs) I reckon if you were picked first and were elated, maybe that'd be a little bit like what we should feel when we read texts like this one in the scriptures today. Hey, woohoo, God picked me. I'm on his team, right? At the end of the day, how about we simply enjoy it? Especially when you read the end of the Bible? I mean, we tend up to be on the winning side, right? So the second component in creating disciples or followers is that not only the Father reserving, but the Son revealing. Look at verse six, Jesus speaking, "I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world." Let me kind of explain to you what that means. I've manifested your name is really an old way of simply saying, I have revealed your character. God, I've revealed your person in detail to the people that you gave me out of the world. In other words, Jesus shows us what God is really like. Paul calls Jesus the visible image of the invisible God. If you don't know what God is like, you look at Jesus. So in the Old Testament... The name of God, Yahweh, means I am that I am. And every Jew knew that Yahweh was a great and mighty and powerful God. In fact, the only God. But Jesus took that name and kind of made it more approachable for us, more understandable, more manageable for us to grasp. He said things like, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the good shepherd. I'm the door to the sheepfold. In other words, he brought God down to the level where human beings can kind of understand him. And God becomes to us whatever we need. If you're thirsty, hey, I'm the living water. If you have a spiritual hunger, I'm the bread of life. So you might say Jesus Christ is is God spelling himself out in a language that we can understand. So Jesus said this, if you've seen me, you've what? You've seen the Father, he tells this to Philip. Have I been with you so long, dude? (laughs) Don't you know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? What does he mean by that? Well, things like, well, when you see Jesus, for example, teaching the multitudes, you're seeing that God cares that we actually know truth, that we know certain truths about God, we know certain truths about ourselves, we know certain truths about our world, that's God taking care of us that way. When you see Jesus healing people who are sick, you see a God who cares about you know, the ravages of sin on this universe, that everybody actually suffers, everybody pretty much dies, right? So when you see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, you see a God who's brokenhearted over the rejection he's received from his very own people. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the Father reserves, the Son, Jesus, reveals the character and nature of God. If you want to know what God is all about, if you know what he's, want to know what he's like, just look at what Jesus was. And it's more than just the nature and character of God. I think it's the truth um, about life. It's the truth about us. He gives us not just the nature of God, but the truth of God in his words. Look at verse 8. For I have given them the words, take note of that, the words that you gave me. Not only is Jesus the living word, going back to John 1:1, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, blah, 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 blah. There's stuff about Jesus. And then it says this in verse 14 in John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It leaves no mystery as to who the word of God is. It's Jesus Christ. But more than that, Jesus also authenticates the written word. If you read through the Gospels, you know that Jesus on many occasions sometimes when asked questions, would refer back to the Old Testament and quote it as if he considered everything he quoted from it to be the very words of God himself. That's how he saw it, and I guess maybe he should know, being the word of God. <laughs> he would know what he said. He said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets, which is really a reference to the entire Old Testament. I've, not come, I've come to fulfill, not destroy. He's endorsing the Scripture as God's very words to us. And then he anticipates, I think, the writing of the New Testament. I want you to look at that. Take you back to John chapter 14 for a second. I know we've taught it already, but good time to get a reminder. Verse 26, he says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, in context, that is an incredible and very helpful verse. Why? Well, it's helpful because you and I are sitting here today, and sometimes maybe we wonder, how in the world could these disciples, largely considered a bunch of hilljack, ignorant people by most of Israel, especially the religious leaders, how could they possibly have remembered all the things that Jesus said and did and recorded it accurately? How are they going to do that? I have, I have a hard time writing down everything that happened yesterday, folks. right How are they months later, sometimes years later, going to write these things down and then have it corroborated with other sources well it 's because they had help the helper the Holy Spirit. It was a supernatural work of the Spirit that Jesus sends that Jesus anticipates. the Holy Spirit is going to assist you guys, and help you guys, and cause you guys to remember all things that Jesus said and did. And that helped produce truth in the New Testament that's also proven solid and accurate. Jesus also highlights in that verse that the Holy Spirit will teach additional things that Jesus didn't fully cover. I want to highlight uh, something out of chapter 16 while we're at it. And that's verse 12. Jesus says this to the guys. Not only is the Spirit going to remind them of what Jesus said and did while he was here, but he is going to reveal to them additional truth on top of what Jesus said that Jesus didn't specifically document while here. Listen to this. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. That's interesting. i got a lot to tell you. But you just can't handle the truth right now. Not yet. But when the spirit of truth comes, which happened after Jesus dies, is resurrected, and then returns to heaven, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. I believe Jesus is suggesting here, not too too mystically, the writing of the rest of the New Testament. The epistles that they wrote, the book of Revelation, John gets as a vision that he's going to be writing down. So here's Jesus, who reveals the character and nature of God, but also authenticates the words of God from the Old Testament and anticipates the words of God about to be written in the New. And this is why whenever we gather together, we turn to Scripture. Right? We discuss, we meditate upon it, we think about it, we ponder it. Somebody might be wondering, hey, every time I come to church, Dwayne's actually doing something with the Scriptures. How come we just can't have a party sometime? Well, here's why. Because the Word of God is pure truth. And if you want to grow in your faith, you've got to be exposed to pure truth. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. In fact, that principle is actually found in verse 8 of our text. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So, receiving the words of God generates faith. You don't close your Bible and pray for faith. You open your Bible, receive truth, and then you act upon it, and that's how you develop faith. As you do the stuff that the Bible tells you to do, that God says you to do, then you see God intervene in your life and assist you in your life, and your faith grows. So, Jesus reveals the truth, and there's a sense of uh, authority, and I'd say for me, uh, calmness in actually knowing Scripture. So, the Father reserves, the Son reveals. Here's the last component. Disciples respond to what is revealed. The follower responds to what's revealed. You should ask yourself a question. Every time you enter a room where a study of, of the Bible is going on, or you hear a radio program, or open a Bible on your own, or read something, you should ask yourself this question. So what? Really? So what? What am I going to do about this? You know why I should ask that question all the time? Because frankly, most people, most Christians, don't ask that question. A lot of people who listen to truth casually forget it immediately and thus never grow spiritual. I suggest a better way. A true follower will tend to follow this outline from verse 8. Number one, receive the truth. By receiving the truth. Jesus says, I've given them the words you gave me, Father, and they have received them. Let's ponder that for just a second. The word receive in this verse means to catch or collect or to grip or accept. It doesn't mean to hear something and have it go in one ear and out the other. In football, there's a position known as the wide receiver. When the ball is hurled his way from the quarterback, He does not catch it casually and then drop it to the ground. No, he grabs that sucker with two hands, tucks it away immediately, and holds on for dear life because he knows the defensive backs and linebackers are headed for him and will do anything in their power to dislodge that ball from his grasp. So the idea of receiving truth is to be open to hear it, to grab a hold of it like it's something incredibly valuable, to ponder it as if it is true and has meaning for your life, and then to lay claim to it like it really does matter for your life. Let it grab your heart. Or let it do something on the inside. That's step one. Step two is believing the truth. Okay, verse 8, Jesus continues. I've given the words that you gave me, I've given them, they have received them and have come to know in truth, I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. That's the second part. Not just receiving, but believing. That's how we began this whole thing called the Christian walk. That's how we began following Christ. We received certain truths that we heard. We were there, we listened when somebody told us, or we read in the Bible that we all are sinners, that we need to be forgiven. We go, huh, that's interesting. Let me, let me think about that for a while. Let me ponder that. I'm going to see, what that, see what that, how that flies. Then we heard that Jesus Christ is a fantastic Savior and will forgive us of all those sins based on his perfect life and substitutionary death. And it's the only way to have that relationship with God. And finally, we wake up to the truth. Okay, I'm going to believe that is the truth. But then comes a the point where we actually totally believe it, right? We say yes to it. And then that process is to just keep on continuing through our lives. If you are a follower of Christ, it's much more than saying amen to those truths once and just moving on with your life. It means that when you hear truth, you receive it and you believe it, and then you hear more truth and you receive it and you believe it, and you just keep repeating that over and over and over and over until it culminates and you actually developing into a fairly mature follower of Christ. Did you know that it is actually possible? to listen to Bible teaching and not grow a wit. You know, I'm th- you know what I'm thinking of when I say that? I'm not thinking of any of you. I'm thinking of Judas Iscariot. Would you say that you believe that he probably got to listen to some good Bible teaching in his day? Would you agree with that? I'd argue he heard fantastic teaching, fantastic truth. It was like God came down and taught truth straight up. Because God did come down and teach truth straight up. (laughs) And those disciples heard it, and Judas also heard it. But Judas didn't really receive it, didn't grab it, didn't tuck it in, didn't believe it, didn't cash in on it, didn't change him at all. Behind the scenes, he's plotting against Jesus. So first of all, receiving, second, believing. Third part that completes the process. Behaving. Behaving according to what you've received and believed. I manifested your name to the people, Jesus said, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Allow that last little phrase, kept your word, to rattle around in your brain a bit. They've kept your word. Simply not enough to appreciate the Bible. Not enough to just hear the Bible. Not enough to just underline the Bible. Not enough to memorize the Bible. There comes a point where you got to say, I'm going to try that on. I'm going to try that truth on for size today. I'm going to apply that in my life today. I'm going to behave like it really is true. But you notice in verse six how Jesus words this They were chosen out of the world. Yours they were, Father, and you grabbed them from the world and you gave them to me. Does your life reflect the fact that you have been chosen? out of this worldly system, and hand it off to Jesus Christ? Or does your life mirror the worldly system? Do You see it now? True disciples. Followers are more than learners. They're livers. I'm not talking about spleens and organs. I'm talking about living it out. They're just not those who learn. They're those who live out the truth. Here's the problem, and I include myself in this, because I'm preaching to myself, not just you. Our problem is that sometimes we really don't believe what we think we believe. We have, like uh, the flawed accountant, two sets of theological books. We have our formal theology. We have our practical theology. This is what we say we believe, but over here, this is how we live our lives. A lot of times they do not match. In our formal theology, we say Jesus is Lord. But in our practical theology, often it's, hey, I'm Lord. It's all about me. Jesus can be my Lord as long as he is lining up with my deal. When that happens, now we have a tendency. We have a discrepancy. What we say we believe is not at all what we're living out. And that means what we say we believe isn't really what we do believe. We fooled ourselves into thinking that we're disciples, followers, when we're actually not following. And Jesus says the response is receiving, believing, and then behaving. Just think back to that video we saw at the beginning. Each of those two dogs has two paths to consider. Am I going to go this way, or am I going to go this way? Will I submit to the one with the leash? Or will I just wait for the right moment to do what the heck I want to do? I think what Jesus is saying is that once you become his disciple, the quality of your life should be such that in an ever-increasing way, you never want to be out of sync with him, operating outside of truth, doing your own thing. Why? Because things inside of you have changed. The truth is just too much a part of your life now. See, the trick of the trainer is that the dog who is trained properly actually appreciates his life. He's happy. He's contented. He's loved. May it ever be so for us as followers of Jesus. And if you're like me, you're going to find that Jesus is amazingly eager to spring more truth and more application of truth on us, requiring, yep, some ongoing changes in our behaving. Because he knows we are not yet fully finished products. Yet, in spite of that, he loves us unconditionally and will not ever stop. That is the beauty of unconditional love from the God that's amazing. So let's pray, we'll take communion, and then you guys get to ponder how you're walking with God. Are you really disciples? Lord, thank you for this word from your word, this teaching that threatens us, that challenges us, forces us to think about us in a new way. Maybe we thought, hey, we were doing great today. We walked in here. We thought we were on cat, we were the cat's meow. Yeah, we're good. Maybe we've discovered, hmm, there's some things in us that need to be fixed, things in us that need to be changed, that we need to not only be, they say we believe, but to change our way we behave to demonstrate that we do believe. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given it to us. Thank you that we have it. Thank you that we can read it. Thanks for that it's in multiple languages. We've got it in English. How new neat is that? Thank you for our time together. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we walk out these doors. Continue moving us, to change us, to show us your love for us. It's been so proven by everything you've done so far. We know you're not going to give up on us. Thank you in Jesus' name as we take communion. Ask that you would, again, descend, teach us, say to us what we need to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.